You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny, cold, freezing, frosty, <laughs> beautiful, sunny Davis Day. All of the above. It is 45 degrees on February 15th as Lois and I are preparing the show for broadcast on February 16th. 45 degrees with north wind, 11 miles an hour. Uh, the humidity is 45%. It's going to drop substantially lower than that today, going up to a high only of 57 degrees. Clear tonight and frost, 31 degrees uh, Thursday morning. Almond farmers are nervous, let me tell you. <laughs> Last year, the almonds were in full bloom. We had a sharp frost right about now, a few days into the bloom of the non-Perel, which is the most important market variety. Almond farmers lost anywhere from 20 to 50% of their crop because of that frost. They're looking at frost coming up, but it looks like 31 degrees here. Who knows, other parts of the almond growing areas in Northern California, they might get some damage this year as well. Uh, Thursday is going to be 57 degrees. Thursday night, 35 degrees, mostly cloudy with a little quick storm scooting through the area. We might get a little rain out of it. I see the National Weather Service has backed off of that for our area, but some rain in some areas, like the last two to three storms that went through, just light rain here, some snow up in the mountains. Friday is going to be 60 degrees, partly sunny. Friday night, frost again, 33 degrees. Saturday, 61 degrees and sunny. Saturday night, mostly clear, frost again, 34 degrees, so not likely to do much damage, but still the potential for frost every morning for the next few days. Sunday night is going to be 37. Washington's birthday, mostly sunny with a high near 64. Monday night, 41. And Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high near 65. So temperatures bumping back into the mid-60s next week. Gloriously beautiful weather here in Northern California. February has been pretty dry. We've only had about a half inch of rain for the month. But just for the record, we've actually had our full year's average rainfall already. So well, it's not great that it's dry in February, at least here we've had 18 plus inches of rain, which is pretty much our annual average. So we've got no rain on the horizon. Looks like it's going to be dry for the next several days. Let me take a quick look at the forecast discussion, see if any rain is expected with the extended discussion Sunday through Wednesday. There is a low that's going to hit Southern California, apparently, just like the last couple have. Troughs will deepen over the region, cooler temperatures and chances for precipitation middle of next week. Some uncertainty with this next system coming in, 20 to 50% of observing, say, two inches of snow up in the mountains or greater on Wednesday, but not much rain in our forecast. Uh, KDRT is community radio. That means we're public radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. We have some announcements. Uh, first, I have the Sacramento chapter of the California Rare Fruit Growers 
that's CRFG, mm-hmm. and they are having their annual Scion Exchange for 2023. It's scheduled for February 26th at La Sierra Community Center in Carmichael. And I would say go to sacramentocrfg.org if you want details, all that good stuff. Yeah, great organization. Okay, and we aren't even going to talk about what Scion Exchange there is because we did that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to tell you is, you know, Cater has great shows, but we've got some changes coming up. Don, yeah. what have you got to tell well, us about? We want to welcome Gil Metavoy, who brings years of DJ experience to the station. We're thrilled to be providing a home for him to share his deep knowledge of world music. First show already ran. You can go to cater.org and look for the show called Crossing Continents, World Music on KDRT. It was running Monday at 10 a.m. Dirk Brazil is moving his Twang Thang show from Sundays at 8 a.m., to Mondays at 6 p.m. He's going to sleep in on Sundays now, but it'll still rebroadcast on Sundays if you're a regular listener. So welcome, Dirk, to the evening crew. Tune in this Monday to hear the transition from morning to evening. It'll be rebroadcast Sundays at 8. And all the other shows here do rebroadcast, so just check the schedule guide on that. Sarah Ely has ushered in a new programmer who goes by The Serialist and curates chilling soundscapes from an ancient cave bellowing death metal. Tune in to find more. That Serialist, like... Cereal, you know, breakfast cereal, cerealist. Just head over to the program page. There'll be a few other changes, some of which will roll out later in the month. The schedule is changing a bit. Our shows remain where they are, uh, but the rebroadcast time might change. So check catert.org and click on the schedule guide. And Peter Pasteur is making a change. Now, Peter has been here for a long time with listening lyrics, and he has an amazing a collection archive of programs that cannot be summarized in a sentence. Right. And the notice that Jeff sent out said, I would wager he has brought more local artists into the station than any volunteer in DMA history. Peter's show will go down as a legend for all the artists that he interviewed and who, who performed in the studio. I encourage you to check out his archive at Listening Lyrics. And they've, they've got a website up there. Peter is starting a new civic-minded show called Imagining Yolo Davis, and that'll be Fridays at 5.30. So Imagining Yolo Davis. Interview citizens, imaginers, of this community who are imagining projects that will affect all of us for the greater good, from recycling, music, community groups, to, to park cleanup groups. The list goes on. Private imaginers using their talents to enrich our community. What makes them tick and what is so important? The answer, the health and well-being of our community. The goal of imagining YOLO Davis is twofold. One goal is to learn about a particular project and what motivates the imaginer's participation. The second goal is to motivate other imaginers in our community. The show airs Fridays at 5.30 p.m. on KDRT. I do want to do a quick shout out to Wen Chin, who stopped by my garden center, which is right on there on Fifth Street, right next to the studio, by the way. Longtime listener stopped by with her adorable baby and spouse, and uh, it was fun talking to. I always like to, to meet the people who listen to the Davis Garden Show. She's interested in gardening in small yards, issues with partial shade, and is looking in, at houses around the area, so wondering how the soils differ in Davis, Woodland, and so forth. And those are actually, by the way, topics that I can happily answer because I know the soils in the area real well. Great to see you. It's always fun when you folks stop by and say hi at Redwood Bar Nursery right next to the studio there. 
Okay. And we will put those particular questions and topics into the, the queue. Yes. And at some point in the future, we'll have more answers. We've talked about some of them before. Yep. And one of the things that y'all might consider is that if you have a question, but you want an answer faster than putting it in and a couple of weeks later, we'll get it on the show. You can go to our archives and you can search for a word so yeah. that you can find perhaps. Now, it's kind of hard to do on the Kdirt website, but if you go to our personal website, which is davidgardenshow.com, um, you can do a little word search and and check for tomatoes. And <laughs> a say, lot of shows will come up if you do that. <laughs> Don, is it time to plant tomatoes yet? Oh, there you go. Um, sure, <laughs> go for it. They're gonna have a frost tomorrow morning, why not? I have had, of course, people asking for tomato plants or really they're they're learning to ask me when will you get tomato plants rather than do you have tomato plants because I give a funny eye roll when I get that at this point I will tell you something we actually have started some six packs of early girl and celebrity we have them started on the warm bench and I'm moving them into my greenhouse at home to hold them here and bring them in so they'll be available for these early birds who want to get out there in March and either want to I don't know transplant them into larger pots and put them in their greenhouses or put them in the ground and cover them over or whatever I mean I'm I'm giving up at some point I surrender I acknowledge that some of you are going to plant tomatoes in March no matter what we say or do so we will have because I wish to meet market demand, a small number of six packs, just those two, <laughs> early girl and celebrity, because those are the ones everybody seems to want who are in that mode is these older guys. I feel comfortable saying that because I am one. There's older guys who are set in their ways and they want that six pack of celebrity. And I, if I don't get it in the ground by March 15th, I feel like I'm too late. Okay, fine. I'll help. <laughs> now, having said that, I sometimes wonder why these guys don't just start their own from seed, because right now, went into this minor rant is a great time to start doing that at our garden center for example we've been starting peppers and eggplant actually we started in late December on some of those because they take a long time to get to saleable even if you have all of the accoutrements that we have in order to make it happen faster like heating pads and small pop-up greenhouses and lights and all that kind of stuff right now we're beginning to do some tomatoes just to have early ones available as i mentioned we already have some but we're now beginning to do them so this question keeps coming up in facebook groups are you starting your tomato seeds yet for the most part i'm planning out personally tomatoes as we often say third or fourth week of april you know we go by a bunch of different factors we we plant tomatoes in april peppers and eggplant in may out in the garden based on soil temperature or night temperature or whatever metric you choose to use they're about six weeks from starting the seed to transplanting. Okay, that's so come back six weeks and you've got what date? Yeah, March one or March fifteenth or whatever. I mean, I generally plant the last last week of April, so I would say the first of March is when I would be doing tomatoes from seed indoors because the night temperatures are too cold. If my greenhouse is warm enough, I'll move them out there as soon as we can. Let me tell you how we do this though at our garden center because we're growing a lot more of our own vegetables. We have to. We're losing growers you know, it's fairly steady attrition in the number of small wholesale growers. So I want to make sure to have what I need in addition to what I can buy in. So we are starting things on warm pads. 
These are heating pads that you can purchase. They're preset at 70 degree temperature. We do them right outside when we do that, up against the building, up against the wall. If you're at our garden center, go ahead and poke your head around the west side where there's a sign that says employees only, you know, wave at us and let us know you want to look at it. And you can look at what we're doing. We have heating pads going down on the west side, which gets great sunlight all afternoon. So it's a very warm microclimate, but it's still outdoors and it's still cold at night. But with these pads on underneath them, the soil temperature stays 70 degrees. We have had phenomenally good results, even outside doing this, where we know the building is giving some protection and the soil is staying, staying the temperature that it needs to. Problem is that gets crowded because we need a lot of seedlings. And so as soon as they're up, then as soon as they're, they have their first set of true leaves, if we can wait that long, they go into the greenhouse. That's a big jump because the greenhouse is warm during the day but it's not warm at night and we don't have heating pads in the greenhouse. That's actually not really safe. So we, we make a decision at some point, they're going off that careful bottom heat into the greenhouse. And we figure the high daytime temperatures compensate for the low nighttime temperatures. And based on experience, I can tell you that's usually usually true. This year is a bit of a problem because the night temperatures are colder. So at home, they're coming back inside my house at night if it's something I really value. At the nursery, the greenhouse is adequate and that's that's working for us. So this is what we're doing to get sturdy seedlings that'll be stocky and, and not leggy for you to plant out in six or seven weeks. In the case of peppers, we started back in early January. You better get going quick if you're gonna grow any of your own peppers or eggplant because they do take longer. Be sure to hold off on squash, melons, cucumbers, pumpkins, uh, beans, any of those things, because they'll grow so fast, they'll be too big before it's time to plant them. Tomatoes, there is no such thing as too big. You know, a three foot tall tomato is fine. Just drop it 12, 14, 16 inches down into the soil or dig a trench and lay it down in the trench if you prefer to do that, because you can bury the stem of a tomato plant. In fact, I always do that. In fact, we recommend that. They'll root out the stem and it's great. The other ones, no, you, should, you might as well hold off until practically the 1st of April for squash, melons, pumpkins, beans, things like that. Some people do beans earlier and they're okay. But everything in the cucurbit family, they only take about three days to sprout. They're ready to plant out in two weeks. So don't even start them until it's time to, practically time to put them in the ground. And real quickly on this topic, that always raises the question, why not just plant them directly in the ground? Well, that works, except that there's so many things that like little seedlings then out in the open garden that I have always found. Starting them first, planting them out, protecting them works better than direct seeding them. If you're good at direct seeding, if you have good results with that, fine. But again, those grow so fast that there's no point in even beginning to think about them, except in the concept of ordering from the seed catalogs until let's say mid-April on those in our climate here in Sunset Zone 14, USDA Zone 9. All right, here's a question I think is probably a good time to answer. It's called to prune or not to prune. That is the avocado question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Carol from <clears throat> Orange County writes, I've heard you talk about keeping fruit trees in check by properly pruning to keep it small and fruit just enough to feed a family of four. Does this work for avocado trees as well? I don't hear much talk on these particular trees and wanted to know if they are kept pruned down to reachable picking range, would they start to produce fruit sooner? Like you talked about on the old wood, say, at least start uh, producing in three years instead of 10. I keep, <laughs> what? Well, okay, avocado, well, I, I can just jump in here. Avocados can take any, anywhere from three to eight years to start fruiting after you plant them. Ah, 
That's it's getting it it's getting to the point that we just are so frustrated with avocados because people want to grow them here. Remember, we're in USDA zone nine, where it gets down to the mid 20s every winter, almost. It, we had 27 degrees twice this winter. We get below 25 sometimes, especially those of us out in the country. So first of all, there's only certain avocados that are hardy enough for us to grow here. Even with that, they can be injured by the cold weather. And so the, we're sunset zone 14, same as sunset zones eight and nine, as far as winter temperatures go, USDA zone nine. If you're listening in USDA zone 10, San Diego, coastal Southern California, coastal Bay Area, sunset zones uh, 15 to 24, basically. You can grow Guatemalan avocados because they're, you don't get frost and those are, those are too tender for us to grow here. In either case though, here in the valley, I would not prune an avocado in the wintertime because when you prune it, you're opening it up to more frost damage in the, in the pruning cut. The pruning cut itself can become a point of frost injury. Um, and when they get pruned, they sprout vigorously. This is a general principle of pruning things with, in most cases. When you cut something back, the bud you cut to is triggered to sprout. The buds below that are often triggered to sprout. Then the avocado spends some considerable time growing instead of fruiting. So the harder you prune them, the more it delays fruit production, in my opinion. Now, I know we have a listener in Southern California who's an avocado expert. And uh, if he's got a different opinion that's more relevant to Southern California or coastal listeners, by all means, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. We've interacted before. I would love to have your take on it. My recommendation, though, would be pruning of avocados for any reason should be done after there's any danger of frost. The same goes for citrus, by the way. Uh, don't prune them when it might cause cold injury from a late frost like we're about to have here in the Sacramento Valley. And be aware that you're going to stimulate regrowth, probably delaying fruit production with hard pruning. For size control, you generally, and I, this is how I do my mandarins and such on my, in terms of citrus as well, at some point, two to three, four years in, you take the center of it down to an existing branch that's already there, an existing, we'll call it a lateral branch, but it's an existing branch that's there. You cut to that rather than just doing a heading cut on the top. That way the growth immediately goes up in, the new growth starts to come out of that branch rather than the plant bursting a bunch of buds at the point of the cut that are poorly attached and that you'll have to work on later. And that's your best method for size control. And typically you only have to do that every three, four years, and it's like one careful cut, not a whole bunch of little cuts, one careful cut to restore the size control that you're after. And again, I would do that anytime April, May is generally safe, I think, here in the valley. I would avoid any pruning cuts during very hot weather here in the valley that might expose interior wood to direct sun. Avocados are very sensitive to sunburn on the bark. And it's kind of the beginning of the end when that happens. So you want to be very careful not to prune them going into hot weather in a way that exposes bark. But if that happens, and it does sometimes, whitewash it immediately. Just get some interior white latex, mix it with water, whitewash the suddenly exposed bark to prevent sunburn. But yeah, size control can be done, uh, but it's generally better to do with strategic pruning rather than hedge type pruning. You want to reduce the re-sprouting and just control the shape and size of the tree with some careful pruning would be my suggestion. And the reason I mention this is that avocados here are usually planted in somewhat sheltered locations because we're trying to avoid that cold injury that can occur on them if you have them right out in the open. My neighbor has an avocado right down by their mailbox, 27 degrees, defoliated it again this year. That happens 
practically every year to them because it's right out in the open and we're out in the country. So they're kind of, you know, I don't know if they've ever seen fruit on this tree and I know it's been in the ground for seven or eight years. It's always recovering from last winter's freeze. We generally here are planting them, even the, the hardier types like Mexicola, we're generally planting them close to a building, close to an overhang, close to a fence, in which case pruning is going to be necessary just for it to fit into that location. So try to do strategic pruning rather than hedge type pruning and try to do it as minimally as you can within the constraints of your particular site. And bear in mind that it will sometimes delay or reduce fruit production for a while when you do that. Every now and then avocado farmers have to do severe pruning on their trees, generally because of drought restrictions. Uh, when they have severe drought restrictions in avocado growing regions, some of the growers will stump the trees. It's amazing to watch. It looks like they're taking out the orchard. That's so they can, of course, greatly reduce water application to the orchard for a year. It then takes two to three years for them to regrow and start fruiting again, but they haven't lost the entire orchard. They've just lost a couple years harvest. That's a severe drought reaction, but it does explain or, or illustrate the effect on delaying fruit production from hard pruning. So we don't recommend that. There may be extreme circumstances where you would need to do it. Generally speaking, light pruning, avoid exposing the bark and try to do it strategically rather than in a wholesale hedge type manner. Well, from our email, we have a repeat customer. This is Kimberly, who frequently writes to us and says, well, it's suddenly spring-like here in Granite Bay, California, yeah. as I'm sure it is down in the valley. I'm very far behind in preparing our home garden and thought I might take you up on a recent suggestion. That is to send you a photo of our fruit tree so that you might draw some hash marks on it where I should prune. Mm -hmm. This is a a peach tree about nine years old. I realize you may have an orchard or home garden photos, but after that offer, you might have been swamped. But anyway, I'd appreciate it if you could help. And so she has sent three pictures of the same tree. It's wonderful from three different sides. So you can see it completely around and, and is asking Don to please write on it and then send it back to her. Now, yeah. Don, is this something that anyone can do? Can anyone just send in stuff for us? Oh, yeah, sure. And this, these are good examples. I'll probably do is uh, take one of these and post it uh, so that we can talk about it for an, an upcoming show. I talked about training fruit trees last week when Lois was off. And uh, this is a, it's a really good illustration. So I actually will work with this one. I do this with customers all the time where I just, they print it out. I take a Sharpie and I mark where roughly I would cut to illustrate the idea. These trees have been vase trained. So there are going to be some constraints on how to train them and how to prune them. Uh, davisgardenshow at gmail.com is absolutely fine for that. We don't guarantee that we're going to you know give you every everyone get a private pruning analysis but this is a really good example so it, it's actually a handy way to go when you go in to talk to any garden center near you for example you could just walk in with your ipad bigger screens are better for us older people please but uh, or printed uh, on paper that's, that's always great. that's great because then i can just scribble right on it right there and uh, it, it at least gets you started and what i find the reason i wanted to talk about this what i find is that people often respond by oh you're pruning that pretty hard Yes, peaches and nectarines are pruned pretty hard or else they'll fall apart from the weight of the fruit. Uh, when we had a pruning service for almost two decades, we did pruning of fruit trees for customers. We had over 100 clients. And the first couple ones, I would go along with the crew and show them. And I always had a couple customers who had enough different fruit trees in their yard. I'd say, do you mind if I come and do a training session at your yard? Oh, good heavens. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Can I watch? You know, can I bring all the neighbors? Uh, sure. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> but I would always walk up to the peach trees in the next nectarines and say these trees are color-coded for your convenience notice all the red 
wood, smaller branches, and all the gray wood, bigger branches. The red wood on peaches and nectarines is what's going to fruit. That's last year's growth, so it's new wood. That's a term you'll run into that's confusing, but that's the only part on nectarines and peaches that fruits, and it's what grew last year. And we would head back 50% of that and thin out 50% of it. Okay, 75% reduction in fruiting wood on peaches and nectarines. And then we would explain to the customer, you also need to thin the fruit. You're going to need to go out where there with that fist method where you make sure that the each peach or nectarine is a fist distance from the next one. In other words, three, four, five inches apart down the branch that we've already cut back 50%. If you don't head them back 50%, thin out 50% of the fruiting wood and thin the fruit, there's a high risk that your peach trees will collapse if you have a good fruit set. So you get, because you're talking about a fruit that weighs, you know, what, three quarters of a pound, a pound, and every flower has the potential to fruit in a good sunny year when you get good pollination. You can go along most years, everything goes fine. Then suddenly you get a year like this where it's sparkling and sunny when they're blooming. You got a heavy fruit set. You go, oh boy, I'm going to have so many peaches. You know when the branch breaks? about two weeks before they ripen <laughs> always they're full size they're they're getting ready for the last ripening phase they're at their maximum weight and that's when the branch breaks on very predictable place on the you know, point of the curve and you're propping it up with two by fours to try and get that fruit to harvest and you've also now got sunburn on the interior of the tree and so on so the takeaway from our training sessions was walk into the yard and identify the peaches and nectarines first because they're going to be the hardest pruned. The fruit trees that fruit on spurs like plums and apricots and apples and cherries, we do rather differently. And we're not going to do a whole pruning thing here today, but I did want to emphasize that peaches and nectarines have to be pruned harder than just about all your other deciduous fruit trees or else they will overproduce and fall apart. You can skip pruning your plum for a year. I've done it. You know, you'll just have way more fruit than you know what to do with next year. And a lot of it will be smaller than would have been optimal, but the tree is not going to collapse from it typically. But peach or nectarine, you really have to manage that annually. Don, it is the middle of February, February 15th. And uh, that leads me to try and talk to you about my favorite word, Sarcococa. Sarcococa have been blooming. Sarcococa. It's I, I walked into the house and it beautiful smell out there. Yeah. I was surprised. I thought it would have been finished by now, but it's going strong. They started in January. They bloom for six to eight weeks. Actually can even go longer than that. It's a midwinter bloom. So this is a plant that uh, seeks to attract pollinators by the means of dispersing volatile organic compounds, which we call fragrance all around the area and there's a number of shrubs that do this they're actually great things to work into your landscape just easy care shrubs like sarcococa osmanthus fragrans eliagnus uh, various of the eliagnus have this little tiny flowers so you hardly notice the bloom and in their particular bloom season you have this usually rather spicy very sweet fragrance drifting away you know it's obviously intended to draw pollinators so it drifts down your driveway 10 feet away 15 feet away you may smell it osmanthus fragrans that's the sweet olive it may be 100 feet away and these are amazing evergreen shrubs that work well in our USDA zone, zone nine. I think some of them go down into zone eight, but beyond that, I don't know if you can grow them. Sarcococa ruscifolia, the sweet Victorian box, if you want a common name, though honestly, hardly anybody uses that because it's so fun to say. Sarcococa. <laughs> and when you write it down, I have to tell you this, when you write it down for people, and you, or they're writing it down, you're spelling it, they always bog down because S-A-R-C-O-C-O-C-C-A. And they just keep adding C's. <laughs> but, <laughs> but all you have to do is 
teach them how to pronounce it, and they'll have so much fun saying Sarcococa. And it's a it's a shrub that needs shade. It actually mine are growing in complete and total shade after thirty five years. They are now six feet tall, and uh, they for the longest time they're basically three to four foot. They look sort of like boxwood, hence the common name Sweet Victorian Box. They have that shiny leaf, and you can clip them if you want to do that. They look really nice if you just leave them informally. Many of you may know a ground cover form of Sarcococa, Sarcococa hookeriana humilis, which is like it's a it's a rhizome spreading low shrub. It functions a lot like let's say Ribes viburnifolium or Mahonia repens. Creeps outward, makes a plant about a foot tall. I have seen that at least in the Mid Atlantic state of uh, where was I Pennsylvania? That's a Mid Atlantic state, right? Um, where it was growing just fine. So I know it to be at least cold hardy to that climate zone. And it's another ground covery plant that also grows in considerable shade and has the same kind of blossoms, though of course not nearly as abundant since it's a much lower grower. So you may be able to grow that one wherever you're listening. Sarcococa ruscifolia is a good possibility in a lot of climate zones. And again, it likes total shade. There aren't that many plants that grow and bloom in total shade and have this nice bonus of fragrant flowers. So the ruscifolia has shiny black leaves, yep. pretty big, about the size of a pea. And um, does the low growing one have the scent? Yes, but it's much less pungent. So it's the kind where you go up to it and smell it. Whereas the ruscifolia, we'll go down to it and smell oh, it yes. on the ground. <laughs> it's a great one for shorter for uh, kids. Uh, Sarcococa ruscifolia is a really useful shrub, and the others I mentioned, osmanthus. I mean, that's a very nice background shrub, more on the scale of a privet. Uh, you know, it's a it's a bigger thing. It really mm -hmm. looks nice if you can let it grow naturally. And again, it's these little tiny flowers, and you're ten yards away, and suddenly this sweet smell overwhelms you. But it's not like not like paper whites or something. This is not like or star jasmine. This is not an annoying smell. It's just like a pleasant surprise, especially midwinter. I mean, the flowers, of the, the shrubs that bloom in the winter seem to have to work harder. Daphne odora, winter Daphne. I mean, that's one of the most fragrant shrubs in the world. We don't talk it up here because I'd say they've got a 50 to 80 percent mortality rate in the average landscape, but uh, it's worth it per year. <laughs> yes. I, every time I send one out the door, I want to say its last rights. I know their chance of success are pretty, pretty low. When you get one that works, Daphne's wonderful. It's just incredibly fussy. Not Sarcococa. You can plant that just about anywhere as long as it's not in direct sun. So, Don, we've been talking about pruning trees. And I'm wondering if you can explain for me this odd word that just showed up, gamosis? What yeah. the is gamosis? A lot of the stone fruits, by which I mean peaches, plums, nectarines, apricots, all that crowd, um, can put out this goopy stuff. It looks like amber, except it's soft and gelatinous, or sometimes it's more more brown in appearance, which is an important thing. Sometimes it has little bits of wood and frass in it, which is also important. Trees produce, trees have gamosis in response to any of a number of factors. It's disconcerting when you go out and look at your tree and see down near the graft union or someplace that a pruning job was done, you know, a branch was taken off, this stuff coming out. Obviously, you don't want to see stuff oozing out of a tree, although it is the tree's natural wound reaction. Okay, so it's not necessarily indicative of a problem. I used to run into it on my property when I had teenage boys living here who would just whack 
plants as they walked by with bats and sticks and stuff they would cause mechanical injury to the trunk <laughs> i can't tell you how many times i said stop hitting the trees but i would find later that sometimes they're oozing right out of the point where they had done that mechanical injury that's just the, the tree reacting to mechanical injury but it can also be caused by borers unfortunately or by diseases notably cytospora pseudomonas or phytophthora the infamous phytophthora so what I, the question is what to do about it. Well, it isn't necessarily a disease or a pest. I mean, you don't need to automatically be concerned about it. So obviously now that you see it, you usually see this when you're pruning, but now that you see it, monitor, you know, just make a note every time you walk by that tree, is it continuing? Is it spreading? Or is it just show up and then sort of go away, which does happen by the way. Um, the simplest thing to do is put on a glove because it's disgusting and rub some of this gucky stuff off and look at it. And one of the first things to do look is look at the stuff or look yeah, at what's yeah. under the stuff. Both. Get down there and explore this. And it's an uncomfortable position, so it may be handy to have a, um, a child do this first part for you. <laughs> but uh, look at the guck. As long as it's not the child that's walking around hitting the well, trees. They, yes. Yeah, well, maybe that can be their punishment. All right. Now we're going to go look at your injury and see what you did, son. <laughs> I, I actually had to say once, an axe is not a pruning tool. As oh we my! Walking, as we were walking out to do some pruning on the fruit trees, and my son and his friend were walking out, one carrying a hatchet and one carrying an axe, and they said, "We're pruning, not destroying." Anyway, that was a digression. So <laughs> rub the gucky stuff off and look at it. If there's anything that looks like sawdust or shavings in there, especially sawdust-like stuff, that's frass. That's been pushed in there by borers. So that tells you that you have a borer infestation. Yeah, otherwise, if not, it could well be just. Um, mechanical injury, or it might be one of these diseases. If it's Phytophthora and it begins to stain and sap up the trunk from the point of infection, it's progressing. So you need to change your watering pattern very likely. You can save the tree sometimes by pulling all the mulch away, getting more air circulation, pruning the tree up for better air circulation, maybe more sunlight. They'll be very careful not to suddenly expose the bark to direct sun and make things worse. But especially, I, I typically see this picture where there's a bunch of stuff up against the trunk or the tree was planted too deep. Not much you can do about that after the fact, but pull that all away. Get Remember, air and sun are your best allies in the fight against any disease. So then watering deeply and infrequently, not spraying against the trunk, water with drip or with a, you know, a basin where you fill it up and let it soak in and then go as long as you can without watering again. It's more likely for Phytophthora to be a problem where you're using sprinklers. Uh, or where you're just watering with a drip system that comes on, you know, 10 minutes every day, that kind of thing. Let's go to orchard style watering and you can stop Phytophthora in its tracks. I have seen that happen. You can just take away the conditions that are favoring the infection and it will just stop progressing. Yes, it's still there. Yes, that part of the cambium was injured, but the tree can survive that. In fact, can even heal over that. So the changing your pattern can help with Phytophthora. Uh, some diseases would lead you to water, to prune in dry weather. And I would say in general, pruning in the rain or when rain is about to come in is a bad plan. We know that there are some diseases that, diseases that can get in through pruning wounds. They'll tell you that with California natives. Don't prune, prune ceanothus when it's raining. Don't prune manzanitas when it's raining. And I think that's probably a good plan for fruit trees as well. We do know you shouldn't even consider pruning cherries or apricots in the winter because they're so vulnerable to Botryosphera in the case of cherries and uh, whatever it is in the case of <laughs> case of apricots. Um, these are diseases that get in through the pruning wounds, eutypa fungus, get in through the pruning wounds when it's raining. They have to splash in so that it only happens when it's actually raining, when the wound is open. But the wound or remains, when you're sprinkling. 
Right. If you're spring, well, if you're sprinkling overhead like that, I mean, it has to splash mm -hmm. onto the pruning cut. So that would be less of a concern with respect to that. But just don't prune when it's raining. First of all, it's dangerous. You shouldn't be out there anyway, climbing around with pruning things in slippery mud. But it also can lead to injury, you know, things infecting through the pruning cuts. So it's not immediately something to worry about. It can be. It can be something to be concerned about, but um, monitor it, monitor it, change your irrigation patterns, move the stuff away from the trunk. Oftentimes the problem basically goes away. We don't have sprays for borers that I'm willing to recommend anymore, but you can take away the conditions that made it favorable for them, monitor them. Um, there's, you know, some people do spray for it. More to the point, don't allow any further sunburn if that's what caused the borers to get in. So you may need to whitewash it. This is one of the few cases where we actually do use a paint but not a pruning paint just a whitewash just just to reflect you know to reflect sunlight again ucanr.edu has great information on these topics uh, that's the old ipm site so now it's ipm.ucanr.edu they have garden pages and farmer pages don't go to the farmer pages, you'll get overwhelmed. Go to the garden pages and uh, look at the suggestions there. And I always suggest, as with any integrated pest management approach, that you start with changes in the environment, changes in your, your practices that can reduce the likelihood of continued infection before you move to any kind of chemical remedy. In most cases, a chemical remedy isn't either, either isn't available or isn't gonna be very effective. So start with those other things first. That's ucanr.edu, that incredibly valuable site of University of California Agricultural and Natural Resources Division. Well, we have another email. And this one is from Annie, who says, thanks as always for your wonderful garden wisdom. Now that it's winter, my water engineer husband and I plan to belatedly redo our drip system, dividing into watering zones that take into account various plants, water needs instead of zones like the plants on the hill, which include trees and shrubs and annuals. He has been looking for moisture meters going for low, low price, but I remember hearing from an earlier show of yours that all moisture meters are not alike. Right. We are in San Rafael, California, Sunset Zone 16, and have an abundance of clay soil. We have a variety of trees, shrubs, roses, camellias, hebes, blueberries, etc., annuals, and perennials. Would you please provide us with a hopefully engineering-oriented explanation of how to find and purchase a good moisture meter for an outside garden? Well, I'll tell you that the moisture meters that you buy at uh, hardware stores, and in fact, we've sold them, uh, the little cheap ones that are, what, $10, $15, those are designed for and calibrated for house plants. Mm -hmm. So when you use them outside, it always looks wet. They're, they're designed, as far as I can tell, for highly porous soils such as you use with house plants. And very few of you have highly porous soils out in your garden. So they're going to read high. And once, you know, you can use them once you understand that it's always going to read wet, even when it really isn't. So you just have to get within the nuances of, of what, what that means. There are moisture meters designed for outdoor usage, and they're going to be substantially more expensive. And I'm going to defer to my friend, Fred Hoffman, Farmer Fred, get growing with Farmer Fred. He was on the radio on KFBK and KSTE for years. I was frequent guest on that program. And he now does a podcast. And I've been on that occasionally. And our old friend Debbie Flowers on there as well. He has an issue an issue what do you call it an edition of the uh, of the show gardenbasics.net where he goes over irrigation controllers in great detail and so i'm going to refer you to gardenbasics.net episodes look for episode 218 
It's been doing it for a while. <laughs> and uh, it's Smarter Irrigation Controllers. A couple of brands he mentions, Ratio, Hunter, uh, Drop Counter, and there's a bunch of them out there. And so you need to get more information about how they work, but you are going to spend more money on them. I mean, you're looking at a, just roughly a, you know, 60 80 $100 for a moisture meter that actually will last. That's the other thing about those other cheap ones. They just don't hold up. And so paying more for a good quality moisture meter is definitely worth it in the long run. He also has talked on his show about soil sensors with Bluetooth capability. So you can be in Hawaii on your vacation and your phone will tell you your vegetable garden needs water. I don't know what you're going to do about it at that point. I'm going to call Don and have him run over. No, I'm not. (laughs) Probably you can adjust your timer from your phone because I know that's possible as well. So uh, why you would be doing that on your vacation in Hawaii, I'm not sure. But yes, there are are all these amazing uh, soil sensors. Obviously, Soil moisture, something that measures soil moisture directly and tells you when you've reached a particular point would be even more useful. So look for some of those soil sensors. I don't have brands off the top of my head, but they will, they'll, they have Bluetooth capabilities so you can, you can follow along. And what I would suggest you do if you get some of these is look at the pattern, look at how the soil dries out calibrate it somewhat don't rely just on the soil moisture uh soil uh i was about to say thermometer moisture meter or these sensors uh go out with a trowel and poke around as well because distribution is going to be an important factor that's not really covered by this the distribution of drip irrigation systems in vegetable gardens for example is a chronic problem because you've generally used a rather fast draining soil in a raised planter so that could be an issue so double check these things don't just count on the technology to think for you but they're great. They really do what, what people who have these types of, uh, of uh, technology tell me is they often are surprised how long they can go between waterings. That's what we really want to get across. That's one of our, you know, our points we make over and over here. Watering deeply once a week for most plants in your yard would be more than enough for most of your flowers, most of your perennials, most of your woody shrubs, most of your trees. Most of those could go 10 to 14 days between waterings here in the valley with the soils that we have if you water enough when you do a couple of inches of water every couple of weeks. San Rafael, your soils, my guess, are not as deep and agricultural as ours are. And I know, for example, having grown up in coastal San Diego where my soil was a foot of sandy topsoil my dad had plunked down on top of sandstone when they built the house. So I was basically gardening in a large container is what it boiled down to. I had to water more often there than I ever have to here, even though it's a much milder climate because it just didn't hold any moisture and water ran through, hit that sandstone layer and just drained out on, onto my neighbor's side, honestly. Uh, so we would we would have to calibrate this information based on the depth of our soil, the type of soil, how well it holds moisture. Our soils in the valley will hold an inch of water per foot, roughly. Um, I do know in faster draining soils, you can probably only hold about a half inch of water per foot. In other words, you'd have to water more often than we do. So be sure to calibrate it based on a little exploration of the soil afterwards. And remember one of our aphorisms here that we're going to do a whole show of one time. Plant performance is your best guide to how well your irrigation system is doing. Well, I'd like to get another question in from our mailbox. By the way, if if someone has a question, how do they reach us? davisgardenshow at gmail.com. 
All right. And I, I see Heather has written in again. Thank you for answering my lemon tree questions on a show a few months ago. I thought you might enjoy an update and a photo. I removed the root suckers first, started yeah. irrigating, and gradually started pruning the overgrown upper branches. The tree has rewarded me with more lemons than my friends, neighbors, or co-workers could eat. And <laughs> they sent this wonderful picture, which is like the, it's a yellow tree that's got so many fruit. It's amazing. Um, I finally cut back the last of the overgrown upper branches during a break between windstorms in early January. All right. Thank you. And thank you for the uh, picture. Yeah, now, that was great. And I, I do think that every neighborhood just needs one designated lemon grower. You yeah. know, it's, it's kind of like the persimmon tree. I'll do the persimmon. Bill can do the lemons. Uh, Cynthia can grow the zucchini. <laughs> we don't need to all grow all of those things. There are some yeah. things where you'll eat all of them. Satsuma mandarins, sure. Boy, a eureka lemon, it can produce a thousand fruit in a good year. And that's a wonderful thing to share with your neighbors. Thanks for and, the then you talk, and then you talk about plums, and yeah. that's where you get the harvesters to come in and pick your 700 pounds of plums and take them and distribute them to the people who need food. At the food bank, yeah. Now that's a yeah. great option. Probably, probably something like that almost anywhere you're listening. So. Yep. All right. Well, Heather does have another question. She yep. says, now, about choosing a tree for the front yard. I'm considering trees that offer both shade and edible fruit. My neighbor has offered me a healthy looking small fig tree in a container that she doesn't have space for. I initially thought a fig tree might be too big for my yard because I hear they get about 30 by 30, but now I'm reading that they can be pruned to maintain a smaller size. So here's her questions. One, are there any reasons I should not plant this fig tree in my front yard? Two, when would it be a good time to plant? The tree is about two feet tall and is starting to produce buds. I mulched in October and November with arborist wood chips to kill the Bermuda grass front lawn. I don't want to risk giving it an opening to grow back. Could I grow the fig tree in a pot until I'm sure the Bermuda grass is completely dead? And third, what shapes do you recommend for pruning a fig tree? I'm learning about pros and cons of different fruit tree shapes. Yeah. Well, let's take this in order. And the question before question number one is our question to you. Is this an actual named a variety of fig or is this a volunteer that grew up in somebody's yard? Yeah, because seedling figs are very common here in the valley. Uh, figs have been a commercial crop in the Central Valley and the Sacramento Valley for quite a long time. And seedling figs show up. I would consider it technically an invasive plant, except that it's a food plant, so they don't usually list them as invasive. I have had seedling figs come up on my farm. Seedling figs rarely have good fruit. They might but it's rare. Uh, so it's, it, it would be, and they can be beautiful. I get this question all the time. People bring in a picture. What is this tree growing in my corner? We love it. It's a fig. Oh, wonderful. I like figs. I said, well, if it grew on its own in your corner, you might or might not get figs. In fact, the frustrating thing some of them do is they initiate figs in the summer and then the figs just don't develop properly. So if you want a fig and you don't know for sure that this was a fig that they purchased or took a cutting from an existing fruiting tree, you're taking a risk of not getting good fruit. I would just go out and buy a fig tree, but you could ask your neighbor where that came from. If it's just a seedling, then just consider it an ornamental that might or might not have good fruit, probably not. A fig in your front yard will be beautiful. They are very bold, tropical leaves. They're attractive, very white trunk that looks very nice in the winter, especially. They're vigorous in most cases and uh, can get, yes, anywhere from 30 feet or more, many varieties. The biggest fig I've ever seen was a Kadota fig in Healdsburg, California, that was at least 60 feet tall and about 30 to 40 feet across. And all I could think of 
living as I do with fig trees on my farm is, wow, that's a lot of fruit on the ground. <laughs> so yeah. that is one factor you've got to consider. Figs produce in our in the valley here a Breba crop in the spring, which is cool, but you know, it's not the most interesting part. And then mid to late summer, they start producing their main crop and they start ripening on my trees in August. Some people start picking late July, depending on the variety, and they ripen August, September, October. You get figs over a very long period of time. In fact, they still are often trying to set fruit even as we go into the winter because of the kinds of summers we have here. We don't get a sharp, distinct going into fall thing here. It just seems like like summer right on through October practically. And it's not uncommon for them to even try setting fruit, which doesn't develop all the way into, into the fall. So there's a lot of fruit that's going to come down out of those trees onto the ground. And I don't know anyone who likes figs enough to eat a thousand figs a year. I do, again, it could be one of those things that you are the designated fig grower <laughs> in your neighborhood and you trade them with the guy across the street who's growing the persimmons. They're incredibly easy to grow. The roots will go out far past the canopy of the tree, which is a factor to be aware of. The roots are, it's a riparian tree from a dry area. So their roots explore and their roots explore and wherever there's moisture, they make it there, they'll stay there and they'll keep going. So your lawn in a few years will not be much of a lawn if you have it in your lawn. It's okay for the fig to be in a lawn. Not so great for the lawn to be under a fig, I guess is the way to look at it. It'll get kind of bumpy out there. But I have seen them as a great part of a landscape that's gradually transitioning away from a lawn. I, I'm wondering if these are aggressive enough roots that you have a problem with leech lines and water pipes and and the the roots getting into things that they shouldn't be getting into, like your I don't know, septic tank or something. Hypothetically, on rural properties, that would certainly concern me. If you were near leach fields, well, leach field, it would just benefit from that. But your septic tank wouldn't be such a great thing to yeah. have it near. Uh, be aware of that. I have figs on my property that never get irrigated. You see no roots under them. They've been there for 80 years, at least, that we know of. They, I do not irrigate them at all. So they stay about 30 by 30. I have one in my backyard that does get water that puts on 5 to 10 feet of growth a year. And about every five years, I have someone cut it back severely. You can prune figs. You can prune them as hard as you want. People grow figs in climates where it's way too cold for them to fruit do that first or to even live through the winter. And so they do things like bury them or wrap them in, in burlap or, you know, put them in a pot and move them into the garage or whatever. And they often are killed back practically to the stump. First of all, figs are rarely grafted. They're usually on their own roots. So even if it's killed to the ground, it's still the fig you planted. It's not a rootstock as far as I know. I don't know of anyone who grafts figs. And um, uh, they will grow back and still fruit the same year because they fruit not only on new wood, but on new growth. So you can grow figs even in places where you technically shouldn't be able to because of their cold sensitivity. So you can prune them hard. You can prune them low and keep them as a low branched, almost using that vase training technique I talked about last week. So you can go to the Davis, you can go to the kdrt.org Davis Garden Show page, and I put a picture up there of the three pruning techniques, vase training, modified central leader, central leader. You could do any of those with a fig. You want a big old tree that's going to shade the whole street and everything and shower you with figs? Use a central leader technique. If you want one that'll look like a tree, but you're controlling the size, use a modified central leader technique. You want to get at all that fruit, use a vase training technique. All of those will work. And personal story as a student in a rental house there was a fig tree that um, was a, a volunteer 
we cut it down. It said, no, I'm not leaving and set out a whole bunch of, of roots from the base where we had, we had cut it like to the ground yeah. and all these things came out. And uh, the next summer I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, you know, if I just put a chair in the middle of it, yeah. I'd have a wonderful little, little nook. And so we did. And I just, I just pruned any of the branches that came towards the middle. I, I pruned them out. I had a little globe completely surrounded by fig leaves. A fig tree house. I, exactly, a fig yeah. tree house. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, they will take any pruning that you want to do to them. But uh, if, you, if you're trying to get rid of one, eh, it's going to be a challenge. It's hard to do. Yes, I have a thicket of them in my backyard. I will mention Black Mission, our, one of our classic California figs brought in with the mission, so what, 200 years ago, is a smaller tree in general and smaller fruit, but very, very good quality. Blackjack and Violette de Bordeaux are two that are very manageable for most home gardeners. Blackjack appears to be just a tighter internode version of Black Mission. That's the, what it looks like and that's what the fruit tastes like. It may not be, but that's my, my best guess. Uh, so it will, it will eventually get big. It only grows at about a third the rate of other figs. And so it's very easily kept smaller. Same with Violetta de Bordeaux, which has been around for, I think, 300 years and has a whole bunch of names. But that's the most likely name you'll find it under, Violetta de Bordeaux. Looks like a, a mission fig, but half the size. Very good flavor. Fruits like crazy. Easy to grow in a container. You could keep that in a barrel for decades if you wanted to. And so it's a really good one for people who are limited for space want really good production on a small fig tree. The leaves are almost full size. So you still get that cool, bold, tropical look of the fig leaf and you get this great fruit. So those are two. And there's a little a couple of new dwarf ones that have come on the market that I haven't tried. Little Miss Figgy. <laughs> All right, plant, oh. plant breeders out there, we're getting tired of these McDonald's sounding names. Okay, but anyway, Little Miss Figgy is another dwarf fig that's come on the market. Or you can just get a regular fig and prune it hard. Just be aware that if you stop doing that, you'll have a very big tree. And of course, you'll be sharing a lot of these figs with your neighbors. And I should mention lots of other things like to eat figs as they ripen, ranging from roof rats to squirrels to whatever. Possums and skunks love them when they're on the ground. Birds enjoy them. So if you don't eat them, you'll be sharing them with wildlife that you may or may not approve of. <laughs> so bear in mind that there's a litter factor. The most successful plantings I've seen in a front yard typically have mulch underneath them so that it's just so the figs that fall just disintegrate and become part of the soil's organic matter. And that's a really easy way to deal with it. If it's on your lawn, of course, they'll just obliterate when you mow it. If it's on a landscaped area, that becomes kind of messy. So keep that in mind. But yes, they're a great choice for the front yard. But I would suggest if you really want a fig for fruit, buy a fig that you know what it is. So uh, two questions on that one. The, the tree needs full sun. Is this true? It fruits best in full sun and the fruit quality will be best in full sun, but they'll grow anywhere. They, you, you have an ornamental fig that came up, you know, one that just popped up and you're yeah. not growing it for, they'll grow in the shade. They'll be very cool. And the leaves will vary, by the way, sun or shade. So you get some interesting morphology differences. And the other thing is you said you could keep it in a pot, but they have giant roots. How can you keep a giant rooted plant in a pot? Uh, the same way you would essentially with bonsai and these are the dwarf ones in a potter that would be my suggestion yes they'll be root bound by the second year so they'll need water like any other container plant probably every day in our climate as long as it's on a drip system that's running on vegetables or something that would be fine they can be dwarfed intentionally i've seen a really cool bonsai which was a fig and it actually fruited for them and it was a fruiting fig that was being grown as a bonsai and it was it was 60 years old when i saw it so they were doing the classic thing of taking it out 
skimming off a quarter to a third of the roots, putting it back into this fairly large bonsai pot. But it was only about a 14 or 16 inch pot, about six inches deep. This is a pretty serious bonsai. Now you can bonsai anything. You can, I've seen bougainvilleas and other things done that way. That's more work than you probably want to do. Just be aware as one who has grown hundreds of thousands of plants in containers over the course of my career, the more root bound it is, the more it's up to you to provide the water and the nutrients that it needs. So do something to keep it fertilized, whatever you prefer. And of course, keep it watered and the plant, the longer, the more root bound it is, the more often you'll have to water it. But figs are particularly well adapted to that. At least four or five years in a container would be no problem. You could take it out, prune back the roots and replant it in the same container if you want to, or finally just decide, okay, I'm gonna give this, set this plant free and put it in the ground somewhere. So look for maybe a dwarf type. Find out if that one is going to fruit or if it's just a seedling. If it's a seedling, politely thank them, but decline it would be my best suggestion. But yes, a fig can be an amazing front yard tree, just as long as you're aware. Primary factor being the fruit litter, the ultimate size if you don't prune it. And fin finally, to her question about that she mulched in October or November of yeah. last year. And when would the Bermuda grass be completely dead and it be safe to dig a hole and plant? You won't know until about May because the Bermuda grass is fully dormant, even in San Rafael, I think it was, um, and will start to sprout up in March when the soil temperature gets to that point. Early April is when it would be greening up and growing, and that's when you'll know whether you've really succeeded in killing it out. So I wouldn't, you know, I would be inclined to not plant until you know that's been the case, or plant, monitor carefully, keep mulching around it if you have to. You really won't know until I'd say May. It's a perfectly good time to plant a fig uh, anytime in the summer is actually fine as long as you can keep it watered. And so she could hold it in a pot until autumn if she wanted to. Sure. But figs are not, they're not uh, temperate zone trees. I mean, these are essentially subtropical Mediterranean species. You can plant midsummer with no problem as long as you keep it watered. They love, love our valley heat. It, figs, olives, grapes, and date palms were four species of food plants that were brought into California first three at least by this by the um, the missions and I can't remember who brought the date palms in some of the best densest foods you can get in terms of their nutrient status you could practically live on figs olives dates and grapes and you can make wine so just using those things that were brought into California those are all plants that actually actually can live here without irrigation once established they're not native here but they might as well be and some of them becoming a little invasive You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT-LP 95.7 in Davis, California. KDRT-FM is a community radio station broadcasting from Davis, California. Community radio relies entirely on donations from listeners like you and me to fund our ongoing operational costs. Your support keeps us on the air. If you appreciate local community radio, the unique voices and programming that Caterit provides, please consider contributing at whatever level you can. It's easy. Just visit caterit.org and click the support button. You'll find a range of options, ways that you can help keep the programming you love broadcasting at 95.7 FM on your radio dial and live streaming all around the world on kdrt.org. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Catert.